Welcome to Forming the Spirit Within, a teaching ministry of Pastor Brad Riley. Pastor Brad is an associate and teaching pastor at First Church of the Nazarene here in Wichita, Kansas. He is the founder and director of the Merciful Servants of Christ, as well as the author of numerous articles. And now, here's Pastor Brad. Good morning, everyone. I'm sorry I'm a couple of minutes behind today. It has been a busy morning already. We're still in chapter 9, so open your Bibles to chapter 9. We just barely got started on chapter 9, and we are in a long discourse. This whole chapter is just one long discourse between Jesus and this man he has healed, and his parents, and the Pharisees, and it's a, it's a long conversation. It's a very important conversation, so we were taking it slow. Um, I, I wanted to just begin today by reviewing something that we talked about last week. We got into a really good discussion last week and about sin and our accountability for sin and our accountability for what kind of sin and talked a little about the idea of original sin, the idea of committed sin. And it's important for us, I think, to just make sure, I want to make it perfectly clear that what I believe is that we are born with the consequence of the original or ancestral, if you want to call it that. I think ancestral is a better word. Sin. It's the sin of our ancestors and their sin is our consequence. Okay? And that consequence is what? Death. We are all born mortal because of their sin. One could only speculate, of course, but we could say, well, let's say Adam and Eve had never sinned and then had children. Those children would have born perfect like Adam and Eve? I guess so. But again, with a will like Adam and Eve. And so it's maybe one of their sin, children would have sinned. So here's the, here's the real important thing in this discussion, that we, we have to own our own sin. It's the one thing that Ezekiel 18 teaches us. We must own our own sins. And it's our own sins that we're accountable for. And we cannot blame Adam and Eve so much as we would like to because the truth is if you and I were Adam and Eve, if we were the ones back then, we would have done the same thing. There's no one that can say, oh, I wouldn't have done that. I would have listened to God. He would have ate the apple. <laughs> so it would have been Mark that ate the apple first. <laughs> so we have, we have to own the fact that sin Entered that you know it's an interesting thing when you read the book of Genesis. There is nothing to tell us that they lived a long time in this perfect world without sinning. In fact, if you really break it apart, it appears that they sinned from the beginning. That for almost from the beginning, in their relationship with God, they chose this sin. So it's not like long time had passed and they lived this perfect life and all of a sudden yeah, that tree looks pretty good let's try that so let's be careful with our own with our own lives we all there's enough sin to go around and we all have committed sin and the book of Romans is very clear to say that uh, that everyone has committed sin and that the wages of sin is death so 
So you're saying you don't think they did live a long time before I, they? I don't think they did. No, I, I, I think we can't, we can't know the time limit. There is no way to tell from the text what the time limit is. But the way the story is told and the progression of the story, I think it was a, an early event in their lives. No way to prove that. That's just some of the best readings that I can get out of the progression of the story. Um, hard to say what you know what that is though. But there's no reason to believe they had walked with God for most of their lives and then decided to sin or something like that. Would, would, would uh -huh. most of their lives? Yeah. At that time, would have their lives had an ending? Or? Good question. Were we within time and space at that time? They're, 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 they wouldn't have had they wouldn't have had an ending in the sense that they wouldn't have died because they weren't mortal until they sinned. They were definitely within time and space because God had created the sun and the moon and the world was operating, you know. So there's definitely time, if you will, but they were definitely immortal and became mortal at some point in time. And the most important, whether you believe they lived a long time and then messed up or almost from the beginning, I, I, that's a moot point, but it's important that we say None of us can blame them. Our sin is proof enough that we would have done the same thing. And the fact that there's never been anyone who hasn't sinned, except for Jesus, of course, is proof enough to say that any one of us would have done the same thing. So we can't be self-righteous. We can't say, oh, I could have done better than Adam. I don't think so. And in this story in chapter 9, we are looking at some, some very... Uh, very important thoughts of Jesus Christ because he's as much as saying to us it's not about sin not everything in this world that was a malady or a problem or a disease is about sin sometimes it is sometimes a person uh, for instance if we go back to the man at the pool who had been lame for 38 years we know there was a period in time he was lame for we don't know what it was but Jesus said to him, go and sin no more. We don't know. Perhaps, we can't say for sure, but perhaps his lameness was a result of a sinful life. Maybe he was doing something sinful, living some way sinful. It caught, robbed him of his, you know, any number of scenarios could be drawn out. But it's definitely possible that sin can issue forth into a disease or an illness or whatever. But it's not a... I can't use the legal terms of ipso facto, whatever, whatever lawyers like to say. It, it's not a foregone conclusion that every problem is because of, or every, every like this man's blindness. It's not a foregone conclusion. It had to be of sin. Jesus says, no, it's neither. It's neither his sin nor his parents. But it's that God may be glorified. Now, we want to talk this morning about how God is glorified in this incredible miracle as we kind of follow it through. Um, as... As Jesus chooses to heal this man, uh, we kind of ended last week talking about the idea that, uh, that there is, uh, we must work in this. As long as there's light in the world, we must work in this world. And it's our work to do. Jesus says he works with us. He uses the term we. That means Jesus and us. We must do the works that the Father has set for us to do. And then it says, as he said this, verse 6 is where I want to pick up this morning. It says that as he said this, he spat on the ground and he made some clay. 
And then he anointed the man's eyes, which means he rubbed that clay on the man's eyes, on his eyelids, in other words. Okay? And then he said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam. Now the word Siloam means sent. That's actually what the word means. And so it says, the man went and washed and came back seeing. This is an amazing miracle. Let's talk about it for a minute. Why do you suppose Jesus didn't just send the man to the pool? Go wash your face in the pool of Siloam. Anoint your eyes with the water in the pool of Siloam. He was sending him. The word sent, Siloam means sent. Why, Why do you suppose Jesus didn't do that? See if we can discern a few things here. Any ideas? Did you ever think of that? Why did he make the clay? Does it, does it have anything to do with how God formed us in the beginning from clay? Oh, that's an interesting connection, isn't it? What do you think? I don't know. <laughs> I mean, it's good I that mean, you thought that. He fashioned us from clay to yeah. To and in the scripture in the tells beginning us where we were we're made out perfect. of perfect. Mm-hmm. human in the beginning so mm-hmm. would the clay have something to do with fashioning those eyes to bring them back I don't know well, I, I think you're on to a real nugget there God wants us to see he wants us to learn something Jesus doesn't do anything for no reason Okay, there is something deep for us to learn about this idea and it has to do with the clay and it has to do with the spittle Okay, how many of you feel that's rather repugnant that Jesus spit on the clay and rubbed it on his eyes? I mean, if I did that for you, would that bother you? Mark, you, oh, Mark, you got a problem with your arm there. Let me spit all over this dirt. Let me rub that on your arm. You, you, would, you would think, you'd pull your arm back and say, no, you're not. <laughs> not now, we, now we clean the dirt out because it has germs and That's right. <laughs> Think back with me. Let's go back to Mark. I want to look at a parallel here. In, chapter, in Mark chapter 7, when we studied Mark, there's a really strong parallel here. In Mark chapter 7, Jesus is, Jesus is healing the deaf man. You might remember this. I'll just read a couple of verses. Starting with verse 31 in Mark chapter 7. Again, departing from the region of Tyre and Sidon, He came through the midst of the region of Decapolis to the Sea of Galilee. And then they brought to him one who was deaf and had an impediment in his speech. And they begged him to put his hand on him. It's interesting. They just know the touch of Jesus is healing. Just begged him to put his hand on him. Okay, now verse 33. And he, meaning Jesus, and he took him aside from the multitude and put his fingers in his ears. And he spat and touched his tongue. Now you thought it was horrible if I (laughs) spit on clay and put it on your arm. How about if I spit on your tongue? (laughs) It must be culture, culture, you said. Yes. See, this is stuff, this is why we want to do cultural studies at the same time as we do deep Bible study. It was very much the culture. In fact, it was believed in the ancient world that spittle had curative powers. This was medicinal in their day. In fact, some of the stories of Roman history, the writings of people like Pliny and Tacitus, these are Roman historians, they tell of remarkable healings uh, used from famous persons 
or famous people's spittle. Those could be legend, we don't know, but the idea is that the, the reality is that spittle was believed to have curative powers in the ancient world. Now, today it's seen as carrying germs. Um, and, and, and it's important for us to understand that it, uh, Jesus chose to do both, the spittle and the clay and the pool in Siloam. I asked you the question, why did he go, why did he send him to the, why, not, why didn't he just send him to the water to wash his face in the water? What might have occurred if he had done that to be healed? Well, the people might have thought it was the water that healed him. You know, they could say, oh, well, it wasn't Jesus, it was the water. That's a special pool. Remember how the people all sat around the pool with the other lame guy in the, the pool of Bethesda? It was considered to have special curative powers in that pool. So Jesus doesn't want people to think it's the water. So he's not going to say just that. But does Jesus want him to think that it's the spittle? Does he want him to think it's the clay? No, he doesn't. Jesus wants them to know it's him. Okay? And so it's very important. He uses all three things. He uses three things here. Spittle, clay, and water. Those three represent something very powerful for us. Because they are the essence of our creation. Okay? And our redemption. They're the essence. Let me say that again. They are the essence of our creation and our redemption. What do I mean by that? If we go back to the book of Genesis, you're exactly right, Debbie. He formed us from clay. Huge typology here. Okay? Just a huge... These people knew this. These Pharisees, they know their creation story. They know everything about it. These are learned people that are going to argue with Jesus in this process. They knew that clay, that's a very very, uh, important typography here, if I can use that word. It's probably not a good word for this, but I can't think of another one. A typology. The clay represents, it's an important symbol because it represents the essence of our humanity. God formed us out of clay. The spittle, of course, what, what made the clay come to life in the Genesis story? God fashioned the breath, the breath of God. So in this case, it's not breath. He didn't breathe on, but he used spittle. Why did he use spittle? Again, spittle was very much a, uh, they would expect a healer, a physician to maybe do that. So he was acting in a way customary to what they might understand. But it's also Christ's spittle. And there is no one more important than Christ. He is God made flesh. And so it's it's coming from within him, kind of like the breath of God comes from within. Okay, it's a part of the being of God. So here we see the part of the being of God mixing with clay. And then why didn't why didn't it just why didn't he just come to life then? Why I mean not come to life, but you know, come to sight. Why didn't that just work? Why did he have to go to the water and be washed? What? But think about it with me. You're, you're right. But if even if, if you did that to me, if you put clay on my eyes, I could still open my eyelid. Okay, it's not like he couldn't open his eyelid. But in fact, uh, you, unless you tape it shut, you can usually always open your eyelid. Okay. So even with it might not feel good and everything. Water represents a cleansing or a. Oh, so now we have another typology. Water. 
always, when you see water in the New Testament, what should you think of? Baptism. Baptism, cleansing. Okay? Paul uses the very words in the book of Titus. He talks about the washing of regeneration. Okay? Now, I realize we get a little nervous when we start talking about regeneration and baptism as, as Protestants. But let me say, and I'll just go on. I've said this before and I'll say it again. We have been a little short-sighted in our theology on baptism. Bapt- we don't want to say that it's totally regenerational because we're saved by faith. But we've made the opposite mistake of saying, well, it's not regenerational at all to the point that we don't even make baptism important sometimes in some of our churches. Some, oh, you just, if you believe, get baptized. If you don't, you don't. You can still be a member of the church, blah, 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 blah. Well, that would have never been understood in the ancient church and in the early church and clear up until the last, until the last, really, the last century. Nobody, no Christian ever thought that. There was only one way to be a part of the church of Jesus Christ, and that was to be baptized. And the very first Christian sermon ever preached was by Peter, and he said, be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. And so all through the New Testament, we see this idea of washing and baptism as a way of cleansing and regeneration. And so it's, it's a, it's a uh, false argument to say that, well, baptism can't be regenerational because we believe in faith. We are saved by faith. It's both. It's never, it's never uh, all one or all the other. Okay, uh, you can be baptized all you want, but if you don't have faith, you're still not going to be regenerated. Okay, so it's always about faith. But let us let us wake up theologically and stop apologizing for baptism. Baptism is important. Baptism is critical. It is a grace. We even admit it's a sacrament. What is a sacrament? A sacrament is a means of grace not just a symbol. The Lord's Supper, communion, it's a sacrament. John Wesley said, a means of grace, not just a symbol. It's both and. Okay? So, I think there's a lot of typology happening here. There's a lot of symbolism happening here. The the spittle of God, the reforming of the earth uh, in something that is now blind... But now, because it's been reformed by God, okay, and the blindness represents the sinfulness of humanity, even though it wasn't caused by his sin, represents the state of our uh, decaying self, if you will. And then you mix it with the, the purposes, uh, the things that God used for creation, the clay and the touch of God, and then the washing of regeneration. And you have a beautiful story of redemption here. This is actually a beautiful story of redemption. Jesus is showing us the very steps that, it, that we take in coming into life in Christ, life in God. As much as he was when he was talking to our friend Nicodemus about being born again. So again, even in that chapter, in verse chapter 3, what did Jesus say to Nicodemus about being born again? That unless a man is born of water and the spirit, he cannot be born again. There again, in Jesus' own words, is the importance of water in this mixed with the spirit, which represents faith. This powerful idea of cleansing. So, 
as we go through this story, um, and, and this isn't just me, okay? Believe me, I'm not smart enough to figure all this out. You can go all the way back to this, the, the great church fathers of the second century, and you can see there in their writings this idea of seeing that the clay represents, like you saw, you, you connected the dots there, Debbie, that, that represents the humanity as it was formed in creation, and that the water and the spittle represent... So this isn't all just me. I mean, St. Irenaeus, is fam- he wrote a lot about it. Uh, there's some things here that he wrote about. I like what St. John Chrysostom wrote, who was a 4th century bishop. And I, I'm just going to read it. It's a little shorter than some of Irenaeus' thoughts. But here's what Chrysostom said. And why didn't Jesus use water instead of saliva for the clay? That's a good question, isn't it? You could make clay without, I mean, it probably took a lot of spittle to make enough clay, you know what I mean? Uh, water, you just pour a cup of water, you'd have a lot of mud all of a sudden, clay. But why didn't Jesus use water instead of saliva for the clay? He was about to send the man to Salome. In order, therefore, that nothing might be ascribed to the fountain, meaning the pool of Salome, but that you might learn that the power proceeds from his mouth. Beautiful symbolism there. The same both formed and opened the man's eyes. So he spat on the ground. And then, so that you might not think that it was the earth that healed him, he commanded him to wash. See, this is second century stuff. You know, it's old writings. Third century, I guess, actually. Early, early on. Well, Chrysostom's late 300s. Fourth century. And did you catch what he said here? When he said, in order therefore that nothing be ascribed to the fountain, that you might learn that the power proceeds from his mouth. From his mouth. God's breathing. If you're going to breathe, you breathe. That when he breathed the breath of man, it came from the mouth of God. Okay? Does anybody recall another uh, image of Jesus Christ where it deals with the mouth in Scripture? Another kind of an imagery, symbolism type thing? It's in the book of Revelation. In the book of Revelation, what does it say proceeds from his mouth? A sword. Yeah. So you see how the scripture uses this symbolism? It's coming from the mouth of God. So the mouth of God, both, as Chrysostom says here, formed him. In other words, he was a child born, and God is the creator of all. So the mouth of God formed him and healed him. Both formed his eyes blind and opened his eyes later in life. So it's amazing that uh, God, Jesus is saying, we're going to look at a, uh, we're going to give God glory here, is what he's saying. Because yes, there are people in this world born blind, and yes, that is part of a sinful world, but God has all power, and the same God who created this young man can heal this young man. Powerful story. Well, the Pharisees don't like that story. In fact, it gets to be quite a heated discussion. Um, let's look at some of this discussion here. The Pool of Siloam. Before we move into that discussion, let me give you a few thoughts on the Pool of Siloam. Does anybody know where the Pool of Siloam is in Jerusalem in that area? Those of us that have been there, do you remember? It's outside the city. 
And the city walls that were built, it's outside. It was outside the city in the ancient days with the old city wall. So in case of an attack, that was their main source of water for the city. But in case of an attack or a siege, you know, your enemies come around, that's going to cut off your water supply. Well, King Hezekiah, okay, back in the Old Testament, who knew that Sennacherib was going to attack Israel in Jerusalem and try and he was afraid of that happening. And he said, we've got to build a tunnel. And so in whatever year that was, Hezekiah was, I, I don't know, somewhere in the five or 600 years before uh, Jesus. Um, Hezekiah gave orders to build a tunnel all the way from the Pool of Siloam into the city, which was, if you drew a straight line, like something over 300 yards. Okay, so a football field is 100 yards, so three football fields, a little more, okay? But you know how hard it would be to dig through rock, solid rock, with picks and shovels in a straight line? What they did ended up being about 500, almost 600, a double. You know, it's a zigzag tunnel. The tunnel's there today, okay? And it's what led the water into the city. And that tunnel is, at some places, only about two feet wide, but it's usually in almost all places, some places wider, but in all places about uh, six feet high. And these men got in there and had to, and they started at both ends, and, and they uh, picked away until they had to. I want to read you some of this, because in 1880, in the year 1880, there was discovered in Jerusalem, in the pool, an actual stone that had the inscription. This inscription was put on it. And uh, William Barclay, in his commentary, talks about it. So, let me, in 1880, a tablet was discovered commemorating the completion of this tunnel. It was accidentally discovered by two boys who were waiting in the pool. And it says this, quote, it translated into English, of course. The boring through is completed. Now, this is the story of the boring through. While the, while the workmen were still lifting pick to pick, each towards his neighbor. So they started from both ends and are working to the middle. Each towards his neighbor. And while three cubits remained to be cut through, each heard the voice of the other, who called to his neighbor. And since there was a crevice in the rock on the right side, and on the day of the boring through, the stonecutters struck, each to meet his fellow, pick to pick. And there flowed the waters to the pool for a thousand and two hundred cubits and a hundred cubits was the height of the rock above the heads of the stonecutters. Wow. The hundred cubits down below the ground, starting in the pool in both ends and working towards each other. And they are, so they're standing in water, you know, and they get to this point where they can actually hear each other. It, it's an That's pretty cool that somebody inscribed that on stone. I mean, that was an amazing feat for the for those day, engineering feat for those days, wasn't it? Just truly amazing. The, the things you discover from little archaeological studies like that. Well, let's move on here um, and look at this idea of why are these Pharisees so upset? What an incredible thing Jesus has done for this man. Why are they so upset with him? Well, as we read, um, we read the whole story, so I won't go back over all of it, but we'll just call in attention to certain, certain verses. And um, 
It says at the very last here in verse 11, they, or verse yeah, 10, they, meaning the, the Jews or the Pharisees, said to him, then how are your eyes open? And he answered, the man called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. And so I went and washed and received my sight. And they said to him, where is he? And he said, I do not know. So he didn't know exactly where Jesus had went or anything. Verse 13, they pick up, and it says that they brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. So maybe that tells us there's a group of other leaders of the Jews, and maybe there's another group of Pharisees. So they, anyway, they take him with them. So he's a little bit kind of like under arrest. I'm like, okay, you come with us. Let's, we're going to talk about this. So they take him, and then John notes to us that in verse 14, it was the Sabbath day when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. So right away, we've been in the gospel long enough, the gospel's long enough to know that they get really upset when Jesus does miracles on the Sabbath, don't they? They just get really bothered by that. So the Pharisees again asked him how he received his sight, and he said, put clay on my eyes, and I washed and now I see. And some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. So what's their complaint? Jesus is breaking the law. Well, how is Jesus breaking the law? Okay, let's look at there In their eyes, he's broken through the law three different ways in this episode. And you just listed the first one. Making the clay would be called work. And that's how, even if it was just a couple of ounces of clay, they're going to call it work. This is how technical their law is. And then the other one that's a little challenging is the fact that healing was actually forbidden by the way they read the law. Remember, this isn't all the law of Moses. This is the rabbinic law that's been extrapolated out from Moses. You know, there's the 613 laws, and then there's the, what grew to be 6,000 because of all the years of interpreting in and, and the law and, and writing laws these lawyers did. So healing was considered... Um, Breaking the Sabbath. Can you imagine that? I mean, we, we can't imagine that, can we? But they did. Now, if it was a matter of life and death, their law said you could give them medical attention, but not to make them better, just to preserve them till the next day. Then you could heal all you want. This is pretty technical stuff, isn't it? Pretty technical stuff. And then the third way was that... Uh, There was, a, there was a very particular statement in the law that when you used spittle for fasting, it was usually fasting spittle, you know, they, these great people would fast and they were considered great healers or physicians or famous, and their fasting, the, their fasting made their spittle even more powerful. So it said in their fasting spittle was specifically forbidden to ever be put on eyelids. That's actually in the law. Something about eyelids. Eyes, you, you could do anything with it. You could put it on a wound. We saw that he put it on the guy's tongue, but you couldn't put it on eyelids. And, that, and, that, and I can't, I'm not an expert at all this. That seems rather obscure and strange to me. But this is what's in their heart and mind. Jesus has broken at least three laws here. And so they're pretty mad. And this man is being cross-examined by them. And, and their last comment in verse 17 uh, before that, how can a sinner do these? This, this, uh, 
Some of the Pharisees in verse 16, some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who's a sinner do such things? So there's even a division among some of the Pharisees. Some of them are looking and saying, I know what the law says, but still, how could a sinner do this? This is amazing. And then, 17 says, so they again said to the blind man, what do you say about him, since he opened your eyes? And this is where the man says, he's a prophet. So if he's a prophet, that man is willing to give him some, he's willing to give Jesus a little glory and say, he's a pretty important guy. He's a prophet. Prophets weren't just running around every day. I mean, John the Baptist was a prophet. Most all the prophets that they'd experienced recently in recent centuries had been false prophets because the voice of God had gone in their hearts dormant since the kind of the closing of those Old Testament years. And so it was a pretty powerful thing to say, oh, he's a prophet. Well, 18 tells us the Jews did not believe that the man had been born blind. So what they're going to say, what's their only, well, he must not have been blind from birth because nobody could do that. There's no way the guy could have been blind from birth. So let's call in the parents. So they call in the parents. The parents come in. What's that? They've got to have proof. They've got to have proof. Call in the parents. So the parents are there, and the parents uh, answered, well, we know that this is our son. This is verse 20. We know this is our son and that he was born blind. But how now he sees, we do not know. Nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He's of age. He'll speak for himself. <laughs> Now, I find this very intriguing. <laughs> if he's blind from birth, it'd be pretty hard to walk around Jerusalem without a guide. Okay? I'm thinking most parents might have been with him when he was healed. I don't know. Somebody was with him. I can't prove it was the parents. Okay? But somebody had to be with him and helping him through the city that day or whatever they were doing. It was the Sabbath more than likely, they were at the temple. They were, you know, it was worship and things. It's, it's kind of hard for me to believe that his parents were with him. But the parents don't want to admit that they know who did this. Why? Why don't they want to? They don't want him to get in trouble, too. They don't want to get in trouble. They don't want to get in trouble. They don't want him to get in trouble. They don't want to. They're not going to fall on the sword for their son, apparently. Because what happens? What's the if if you if you believe in a false prophet, and the, by this time Jesus had done enough that anyone who was following him openly was in danger of excommunication. They knew that their whole way of life was being threatened here. But we're in a between a rock and a hard place here. Our son and ourselves. We're just going to get kicked out of Jewish life. We're going to get kicked out of the temple. We're going to be excommunicated from. Livelihood, what it's a pretty serious affair. It's not just an argument that they're dealing with their whole lives, the future of their lives here. And and so in that they turn it back over to their son. And so what do the Pharisees do? It says uh, um, verse twenty four. For the second time now they cross examine this young man. And they said, Give Give God the praise. We know that this man, meaning Jesus, we know that this man is a sinner. And he, about here, the young man, this is about the third time, it says the second time they've questioned him, it's about the third time he's had to tell the story. He says, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I know, though I was blind, now I see. 
I love that phrase. Mm-hmm. And I think that's important for us to stop and think about. What is, what is really being said in that phrase? What is, what is this man's testimony? He's, what he's really saying is, I can't explain Jesus. I can't explain God. I'm not a theologian like you guys are. I'm not an expert in the law like you guys. All I know is I was blind and now I can see. Nobody can argue with our testimony, can they? They can choose not to believe it, but they can't tell me it didn't happen. And they have living proof right in front of them. This is the most powerful argument of all. You know, I can say, hey, all I know is Jesus saved me from my sins. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. You know the song, Amazing Grace. All I know is Jesus saved me. Well, that's nice for you. I'm glad you feel saved from your sins. Whatever that means. That's a little bit of an arguing. You know, we can argue whether your sins ever existed. Maybe this person doesn't believe in sin. That person does. But you cannot argue with the concrete fact that this man was born blind. And now he sees. And no one in history had ever done that. Only the power of creation could do that. So it's a powerful, powerful, uh, it couldn't be a more powerful setup here. And so they said to him in verse 26, well, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? Now, I love this part. Okay. He's, you can hear the frustration in his voice. He answered them, I've told you already. Okay, so if you read that kind of nice English, you're missing the point. I've told you guys already. How many times do I have to tell you? He's irritated. He's He's frustrated. Okay, I've told you already, and you would not listen. Boy, he's in their face now, and you wouldn't listen. (laughs) He's getting bold in his new life where he can see now, okay? (laughs) You would not listen. So then he goes on, he goes and moves from there. He says... Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples? Oh, wow. (laughs) This is sarcasm par excellence. (laughs) This is the type of thing that your mother or father would say, boy, you watch your tongue when you're talking. (laughs) Do you want to be his disciples too? And and so then, and they reviled him. You can tell he he said it sarcastically. We know he did. Because, you know, that's the thing about you can't always tell tones. You know, that's why texting is so dangerous. You, you can't tell the tone of the voice or whatever. You know, but, but we know he did because they reviled him. The whole point just made them revile. That's a strong word. They reviled him. And, and it says, uh, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. They're going to cling to their faith. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. And then I love the talk about sarcasm. It just gets better. The man answered, why, this is a marvel. You don't know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. (laughs) (laughs) You guys think you're so smart? We're supposed to trust you with our lives and the law, and you can't tell that the only one that could ever open eyes from a blind man born that way would be God? I mean, that's this, this whole... Sentence is just full of these kind of feelings and thoughts, isn't it? So it's quite a dialogue. And then it ends with the <clears throat> third, verse 31. We know that God does not listen to sinners. 
But if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And they answered him, You were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. We don't know the fullness of what that cast out means. Was he fully excommunicated? We don't know. John doesn't give us that for the rest of their life story. But we see a powerful ending here of denial. These Pharisees refuse to believe. They absolutely don't, don't. It's like, don't bother me with evidence. My mind is made up. They refuse to believe that this could be God. Even though he's testified, we know that God doesn't listen to sinners. And God's the only one that could do this. It's never happened since the beginning of the world. So the Pharisees, we see them being extremely judgmental. Their whole argument against Jesus is that he, the the reason why they can't believe him is because they've already judged him a sinner. There's no worse crime in the Jewish culture there was no worse crime than to be a sinner. Okay? We're, and especially to the Pharisee who thought of himself as righteous because of the way he tried to keep the law. Go ahead. But at some point, they thought they were righteous from the very beginning. The Pharisees? The Pharisees. I mean, they, had, they grew up as a child. and I mean, I don't, there was I don't no, think they did. There, but, I mean, there was no moment when they became Pharisees that they I don't I think yeah I know what you're saying I I think I I think they they probably didn't feel that way all their lives I think they grew into that feeling I think the pride of life grew them into that the pride of the arrogance of knowing the laws and studying the laws and their whole life was about the law I think it led to a a sinful pride of arrogance and they became righteous that's what I think but I'm not an expert at Pharisaical no, I, history. But it seems that way as we stay. I mean, there's no, nothing that teaches that they were some select group that was born righteous. I don't think they think that. But they definitely believe they're righteous now. Okay, self-righteous, of course, we know. But was righteous. that because of their heritage? The Jews, I mean, the Jews thought that if, well, if you weren't a Jew, you were a sinner, Correct. Yeah, all everybody's lost except for the Jews. But they I mean, knew they their... they knew they were sinners too, but that's why they had their legalistic way of dealing with right. sin, their sacrifices and the sacrificial system of repentance, if you will. So all this comes through education. They're, the way they're educated. And the Pharisees were born of privilege, wealthier, usually wealthier parents, I'm sure, and so they had the opportunity to be educated. Not everyone had the opportunity to be educated like we do. Usually it had a lot to do with the privilege of life and where you, how you were born. I mean, what family you were born into. And that was something Mark and I on the way home last time we had our study was talking about the sins being passed on yeah. to your children. Yeah. And Mark brought up the word reputation. Families get a reputation. True. That is put on mm-hmm. all of the family, so mm-hmm. to speak. That reputation sure gets handed down, doesn't it? Yes. Yeah. The name, your name, or whatever. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway. 
I think that's about good. Food for thought. It's a good mean, thought. So these parents were probably worried about their reputation and mm-hmm. what it would do to their family name also. Probably so. Very, very important. I, I think there's just so much here for us to learn about the judgmentalism of our lives. This is a happy moment. I mean, it was a time that should have been celebrated. Should have been celebrated. Yeah, should have so should have brought incredible joy to the whole city. And Jesus left him on. <laughs> Jesus kind of left him to answer for it. <laughs> go wash in the pool of Siloam and then go defend yourself. <laughs> We all have to learn to defend ourselves and defend Christ, too. First, first lesson in apologetics, go defend yourself and defend your belief in Christ. Well, he went and found him. Yeah, I know, but I mean, there, where was Jesus when all these guys showed He must have been right there. Well, you know, it, it's, it is interesting to see where this goes. Um, well, probably, because we're about out of time here. It says that in verse 35, it says, Jesus heard that they cast him out. And having found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? So we know that Jesus finds him. He hears, he's probably not right there when this is happening, but he hears what's going on. Of course, he knows what's going on. And he cares enough that he's going to obviously go find this man. I mean, the fact that he goes and seeks out this man is a powerful lesson. Kind of like the image. There's so many images John gives us in the Gospels. We haven't gotten gotten to the one where he goes to find the lost sheep, of course, but... um, this idea that Jesus seeks out lost, hurting people, seeks everyone out, calls, the love of God calls to everyone. The love of God is, is extended to everyone. But some people's hearts are just so hard they can't see. And I think what, John, what I'm taking from this study, what's really powerful to me in this study is what made their hearts so hard was their judgmental attitude. And how can judgmentalism can creep into our lives so easily? So easily. Um, you know, I, I think, I think uh, Pastor Mark's sermon was pretty powerful about that. I just really believe that we, we have to wake up in our world today. There's just an awful lot of people not like us. In fact, we... we Pretty much the minority in the world, you know, if you really want to think about it. And what is us? I guess I mean us 21st century, 20th century, white, middle class, evangelical Christians. We, we won the lottery, ladies and gentlemen. We won the lottery. We were born into the most privileged society, the most privileged time in the history of the world. So that even the poorest of us can't even compare to those who were born in poverty in the history of the world and even still in many places in the world. So we've got to take our blinders off and see the rest of the world doesn't look like us and that's okay. God loves them and here's the big clue. His love for them is to be extended through us. Okay? If the world that we think looks so different and acts so different, and, and if we're not careful, thinks is going to hell, you know, let's just say it here this morning. There's, there's people in our midst, in our own way of thinking, in our own heritage, in our own uh, background that say, well, they're going to hell. You know, evangelicalism has a bad name in our world because of its attitudes on who's going to hell and who isn't. And that's a whole other Bible study about hell, and we don't have time to get into that, but my point is... We mustn't 
lose sight of the fact that one of the reasons why evangelicalism is on the decline is because of those statistics that Pastor Mark quoted. 91%, and I've read that book, Unchurched, and those st stats by the Barna group, George Barna, they're very accurate. 91% of all millennials, that's 16 to 29, 91% of them believe that we, evangelicals, are people that believe we're right, and if you can't uh, believe like we do, then we're not going to get along. <laughs> I'm sorry, but that's not the story of the New Testament. Not at all. So there is a large indictment here on our own movement, uh, if I can say our own, meaning the whole world. Evangelicalism's a lot bigger than just one denomination. But uh, we've been labeled for reasons, and that's we're guilty of some of those reasons. What you're saying is that's not the light that Christ wanted us to right. project. That's right. To the world. That's right. That's not the light of the world. One of my newest phrases, I only had to use it on Mark once, but I've used it on myself <laughs> a lot, is put the sword down. <laughs> put the sword down, yeah. That's, yeah I love it's a good that. one. I love that how you said put the sword down. Put the sword down. About the sword and not yeah. drawing it. Yeah, when Mark was talking about that in the, in the sermon. It. Yeah, I've been one of those that showed him my sword, you know, that sort of thing. That was, we that was become very defensive pretty fast. So that was a powerful sermon because I think it drew new, uh, it, it opened up new theological insight for all of us. I mean, maybe there's somebody here that it didn't. You already understood that walk around Jericho as a worshipful act. I've never heard it that but way. But I've never heard it that way, and I loved it. I absolutely I loved it. It makes perfect sense to me. Um, it, it makes perfect sense to me. And I, I think that's, because I've been learning in recent years, that's how we're to look at the Old Testament. People look at the Old Testament as stories of God's wrath and vengeance. Well, yeah, there are some vengeful acts on the part of God against people who are finally unrepentant. But all through those stories, he gives everyone opportunity. Everyone opportunity, just like the people of Jericho had the opportunity for seven days to say, wow, we, we, should, we should stop and talk to these people. This isn't, you know, they've already seen them cross the Red Sea. Now they've seen them cross the Jordan. Now they've seen there's a million or three million or whatever there was. It's, you know, the, the hardness of people's hearts is why God's judgment and wrath fell in the Old Testament. But it wasn't because he wasn't merciful, because he was always merciful. So when we start opening our eyes to Old Testament scriptures to see Christ at work in the Old Testament, in these typographies, if you will, Joshua and Moses, and, and these are Christ-like figures, you know. And, and we start to see that the mercy of God, everything they're doing is to show God's mercy and to give people chances to repent. It's amazing. It's an amazing... Uh, par paradigm shift is I guess how we should phrase it. It's a paradigm shift. Because some of us are used to a world where we were just taught black and white. This is, you know, everyone that doesn't think like us is just wrong and they're sinners. And Well, hey, the truth is we're all sinners. What makes us, you know, any different? By, I'm but, saved by the grace of God, but still a sinner. But I think I'm right or I wouldn't believe what I think. I mean, yeah, I think I'm right, and I think they're wrong, but I, but I I'm not going to. I believe because I think it's right. Because I think but, it's right. That's right, and I think it's a. But I, I don't have to. I mean, just because I believe, I. Where do you get? I mean, I want to tell people about Christ. Yes, absolutely. And, that's the evangel. That's the good news. Telling and what people. I believe, but 
But how do we tell them? That's the key. It's how do we tell them? There was a day not so long ago when the only way we told them was to stand in a pulpit and preach hellfire and brimstone at them and tell them they're wrong and shun them and shun them. Show me anywhere in the Bible where Jesus shunned people. Never, ever did he shun people. He never really preached fire and brimstone except to the final, if, unless you want to talk about Pharisees. to the Pharisees where he finally said, you brood of vipers, you know. <laughs> you know, he, he, he did get pretty rough with them. But that was, again, not after he wasn't merciful enough to have showed them his love and his mercy over and over and over. So I, I think it's, we do believe that we're right. We do believe Christianity is the way. And we do believe that Jesus is the, the way, the truth, and the life, as John's going to talk about in chapter 14. Jesus, those words come out of Jesus' mouth. But yet, we know that everyone is God's child and God loves everyone. And if there's any hope for them to find the same thing that we believe is right, they need to find it just like those people found it. And that was by encountering Jesus Christ and his love and his mercy. Jesus sat down with sinners and ate with them. Jesus walked the towns with the prostitutes. He befriended them and they became his friends. They, they were changed by him. There's nowhere does any historical record tell us that Jesus affirmed them of their sins. He never did that. He always said, like he did to the woman caught in adultery, go and sin no more. I don't condemn you. Go and sin no more. And when you, and when you can get rid of that judgmental feeling, it's like a weight off your shoulders. Oh my. When all you, when all you have to do. I mean, I, I mean, being judgmental is pretty heavy. <laughs> it is. It's. We just the, the the more I learn, I just I'm I'm trying to. You know, I I love. Uh, you know, my my son and I we love movies. You know, if you know anything about us, and Corbin has a movie review business. I mean, he has a website that he reviews movies and talks about the good and the bad in them and stuff like that. And uh, it's, it's listened to by people all over the world, actually. And uh, we have a lot of these deep conversations. In in and he just got a book that said uh, he just bought a new book that we started reading together. I, th- I think the title is something like he says in there, or maybe the chapter, one of the chapters, "God Loves Movies." <laughs> and he starts talking about how to find redeeming things in them and what's not redeeming and how to not approve of certain ones. I mean, it was a really good book by a man who's actually made movies. And you wouldn't know his name, but he actually writes for, uh, he's written, he's a script writer, he's written movies, he's produced movies, he's written Christian articles for uh, Hank Hanegraaff, the Bible Answer Man's website. Um, and in this, in this uh, conversation though, about movies, I said to Corbin the other day, I said, you know, there's a movie I want to make. I really, you know, it's kind of hard to think, you know, if you're going to make a movie, what's a new story that can be told? You know, they're making old movies over again, all left, old TV series, old movies, everything's being recycled in a new way for a new generation, okay? But there's a story that I can't figure out that I think needs to be told, and it's this story, I guess I'm not quite ready to start it, but I'm almost ready to start writing it. I said, I don't know how to write a screenplay, but I'm going to write it, because screenplays are all dialogue, you know? And uh, and the story is this. It, It is about in today's world right now, a group of judgmental Christians interacting in harsh ways that might step on some toes 
if we read it because we might see ourselves even in it in the past. And, and it's about, I want to show the two sides of Christianity in the movie. And so to the rescue of these, quote, sinners in the movie comes another group of Christians who show a completely opposite side of Christianity, who show love and affirmation and, and, and Mother Teresa-style love, you know, that, that sort of thing. And, and, and just, and, and in this, there's a cataclysm. Every movie, every story, every book, every novel has to have conflict. And this conflict, really, the real conflict in the movie is between these two Christian groups, if you will. And I want them to show how they transcend certain boundaries and, and, uh, and how love wins. And so I, it's, a, it's, a, it's a movie. I can't find any movie or book written like that. So I got to do it one of these days. I think it needs to be done. Because that's a medium that tells stories that people can learn from. Why are people flocking to see movies like uh, God is... God is not dead. Has done three now. I mean, these are there's a, there's some very good Christian films out there that have powerful stories. Um, when I go was, ahead. When I was younger, I mean, a younger Christian um, at our church in Sabath, I remember one time we had some visitors come, and they were ladies who dressed with their hair up, had mm-hmm. a little thing across their dress was very very modest. They might. And I remember my first thought judging them just by seeing them was these people aren't going to be very friendly. They're, they're going to oh, be, you know, my, yeah. my reaction to them was, and I was a young Christian, yeah. my reaction to them was they probably don't know how to smile. I, yeah, mean, I yeah, had that, yeah. They had that look about them. But then after church was over, their faces just lit up, and they were the friendliest people ever. But I was judging them by their outward appearance and yeah. what I what I thought, you know, Christian people like that would act yeah. like. I thought, but I was proven wrong. We we do that. We're too quickly. We do that. We do that way too quickly. It's our default position too often. Um, we know we're really living the life of Christ when we encounter people that are so starkly different from us. And the first thing we notice is a child of God that God loves. Not how vastly different they are from us and how much we might be taken aback or something. I'm not saying I'm there. I'm just saying, boy, that's the hallmark of the life of Christ. That's our goal. That's where we want to get. Um, Well, we've come to the end of the hour. We've covered almost all of chapter 9 now. It was a long story, good good story, full of lots of typology and things to learn now. Uh, we'll pick up the story and end the last few verses of chapter 9 and then go into the ever-important chapter 10. Chapter 10 is a beautiful story of the, the Good Shepherd. So a lot of, again, more imagery, more beautiful things that are going to give us a lot of relation back to the Old Testament too. So we'll spend a little time in the Old Testament with some of the imagery we see in chapter 10. Any last thoughts or questions today? Anything on your minds that we've talked about or studied or a story of this? Anything? Talking about the Jewish people, I know I've mentioned this before, but when I was a young nurse, I was working in a Jewish hospital, hmm. and on the Sabbath they could not put on the call light for the nurse. Wow. The, the Jewish patient couldn't put it on? But did they take Gentile patients in that hospital? No, it was Jewish. It was all Jewish. And it was okay. a Jewish teaching hospital. They were mm. formed because the Jewish physicians 
were outcasted and had no place to learn their trade. Wow. But it was a fascinating place to work, and of course there was a lot as a Gentile I couldn't do. Wow. But, um, that would have been a fascinating experience. They could not put on their calling. So it was up to the nurse to get there and meet their need without their asking. Mm. Wow. Yeah. But the nurses could work. Yeah. Well, Gentiles. They could, oh, the nurses that were Gentiles. Was there any Jewish nurses? Not on the Sabbath. Not on the Sabbath. They weren't there. So, Okay, very good. <laughs> wow. Well, it, that shows you just how, how it spills over into the medical community like we were talking about today with this idea of not curing, but, you know, assisting but not curing. It's just so foreign to us. But so cultural today. This is back in the late fifties. I don't know if it's changed. Yeah. I don't know how they are now. Be curious. Where were you? Where was that at? Where was that? In, in Minneapolis. Minneapolis. Okay. Yeah. Very good. There's Fascinating. Sinai. Well, it's kind of that way because physicians want Sunday off. If you get sick on Sunday, you got to go to the urgent care, and they try to give you something to get carry you over to you get the get doctor. you by until you can get to the doctor. <laughs> That's right. Unless it's really <laughs> and they're there. <laughs> Well, thank you for your thoughts and time. Let's pray as we close. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for the encounter in your word that we see today. Help us all to see ourselves in this, in this story. Help us to, to hopefully be able to see ourselves as this man who was blind but now sees and will stand for Christ. We don't have to understand all of the theology and and all of the understanding because you're God and we're your creation but, but we can believe and we can testify so give us Father the uh, conviction of our testimony and today as we close this time we give you all the praise very careful to give you the praise through Jesus Christ your Son our Lord who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit as one God forever and ever and unto the ages of ages Amen this has been Forming the Spirit Within. I'm Roger Culver, inviting you to tune in next time as Pastor Brad opens God's Word, helping us to form the Holy Spirit within us. Until then, may grace and peace be with you.